1: Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts.
0: Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time or just relax to a good book, Relax and get lost in the Daily Book Club.
2: What was that like? Contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
3: They got through to the trauma center and they actually put them up to, they, they put the call through. And so they said, my, my nurse Lee said, she needs to talk to her son before she goes anywhere. And I could hear my son and he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay.
0: Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is a show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head, because we all want to know, what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. Lexington, Kentucky, 1 p.m. on a Friday, Labor Day weekend. Diana, a medical flight nurse, was sitting in a Leard jet. The pilot was unconscious. The co-pilot could not move because he had a broken back. Diana's patient had died on impact. The plane was sitting on Versailles Road in Lexington after it had just slid all the way across the road on its belly. The landing gear was gone. The right wing had been ripped off the plane. And now that it had come to a stop... Diana knew she had to get the door open and get people out because she could hear the crackling of fire and the cabin was filling with smoke. Except she couldn't stand up because she had a broken back and two broken legs. I think you'll hear from our conversation that Diana is pretty incredible. She's the type of person who arrives and takes charge. She's a natural born leader who was born to help people who were in a bad situation. But for this story, that was turned around. She was the one in desperate need of help. I want to thank our mutual friend, Sandy, for connecting me with Diana. I continue, really, to be surprised at the people and stories that are right in my own network. And hang around after the conversation for a couple more things that might be of interest. I now have bumper stickers available. If you'd like to let everyone know about your favorite podcast. And I recently appeared on another podcast hosted by my friends, Glenn and Jamie, where we talked about this show and other podcasting related stuff. That's about a 15 minute interview that will play in full. If you want to listen to it. And if you'd like to be a supporter of this show, you can do that at what was support. And now please enjoy my conversation with Diana. Have you ever been on a plane talking to a fellow passenger and told them this story?
3: (laughs) Yes, actually, I have several times.
0: Really? Yes. You're not worried that it might uh, freak them out or something about flying?
3: That has been a concern of mine, but it has not. Actually, I think it allayed a couple fears, especially for one specific passenger when we were having some turbulence.
0: I'm just picturing... You know, somebody sitting next to you that's kind of scared of flying and you're saying, hey, (laughs) let me tell you this story. (laughs) Yeah. Back when this happened, you were, your job title, was it a medical flight nurse?
3: I was the chief flight nurse for a um, nationally accredited critical care air ambulance called CareFlight.
0: And what was your, what was a typical day like or or what did you do in in that capacity?
3: Well, we did fixed wing transport. So we flew Learjets and we actually flew domestically as well as internationally. So a large majority of what I did was anytime a call would come in for a transport, I would make contact with the facility, the hospital where the patient was to get a complete assessment um, report on the patient so that I knew what we needed as far as equipment, what we needed as far as medical staff. And then I did a large majority of the transports. So Maybe I would do it three or four flights in a week, one week, and maybe two the next. It just depended.
0: Now, this accident happened in Lexington, Kentucky, but you didn't live in Lexington at the time, right?
3: No, that's correct. I live in Largo, Florida, and, and did at that time. And our um, main base was in Clearwater, at the St. Pete Clearwater Airport.
0: So you would always fly out of Clearwater
3: then? Right.
0: Okay. Were you always on the same plane or the same type of plane?
3: Well, we had a fixed wing. We had a 414, which was a twin engine. And then we had Lear jets. And uh, we had at one time six, six aircraft on our 135 certificate. But after 9-11, uh, aviation took a huge hit. And right before this crash happened, we actually were on another company's 135 certificate, which meant that company maintained the jets. They provided the jets. They provided the pilots.
0: So the, the plane that you were on that day was a Learjet, right?
3: Yes, it was.
0: Okay. Can you describe kind of the layout of the plane, who was on it, where they were for this particular flight?
3: Yes. So it was a Lear 35. So you have a small cockpit in the front with my, the captain in the left side. And the co-pilot on the right side. And then right behind that was a jump seat. And then along the right side of the aircraft was a stretcher. Equipped with oxygen and all kinds of monitoring equipment. And then a back bench seat, which is where I sat 90% of the time. And then two captain's chairs, sort of like on the left side, for family members or a extra crew member. Ironically, this specific day... I did not sit in the back of the aircraft because when I picked up the patient, she told me she did not want to lie down. She wanted to sit up. And that was part of the miracle because if I would have been sitting in the back of the aircraft where I did 90% of the time, I would not have made it because it cracked and burned all the way through that part of the aircraft.
0: So we've got a total of five people on the plane. You've got the pilot and the co-pilot in the front and you and the patient kind of in the middle?
3: Right. I was sitting right behind my co-pilot and she was sitting right in front of me by the door and her husband was directly behind her, who, by the way, flew P-51 Mustangs in World War II.
2: Wow.
0: Can you tell us anything about the patient, what the situation was, or if, if is that a medical privacy
3: thing? Well, I won't, I would just let you know this, that um, I had called the day before And they had just wanted to use our aircraft and oxygen. This was a elderly woman who had end stage lung cancer and they lived part time in Marco Island and part time in Lexington. So they wanted to go from Marco back to Lexington so that she could see her specialist there. But because we were an accredited air ambulance, we had to follow certain guidelines. She had signed a do not resuscitate. So I went without my partner, without my flight partner, and I brought, oxygen and all the other things that we normally bring on a transport, but we tried to make it as non-medical as as possible per her request, meaning she got to sit up, she didn't lie on the stretcher, Uh, we kept everything very low-key so that she could feel comfortable.
0: So the general flight that day was you flew out of Clearwater, which is the Tampa Bay area, to Marco Island where they were and then up to Lexington.
3: Right. So when we landed in Marco, which is only a 6,000-foot runway, we touched down. No problems. We stopped and we picked up the patient. And then when we landed in Lexington, that's a 7,500-foot airstrip. And then that's where things went horribly wrong.
0: Let's start from that point. You're you're approaching Lexington and uh, going in for the landing. Can you just take us kind of a minute-by-minute minute narrative of, of what happened?
3: Certainly. About... 20 minutes prior, we start our descent from about 41,000 feet. So the captain lets me know that we're starting our descent. And we call ahead to the FBO there to make sure that they know we're getting, bringing in a patient. And then I secure the cabin. I made sure that the patient was secure, her husband was secure, all medical equipment was secure, and that I was secure. So it was a beautiful sunny day. Nothing seemed amiss. We touched down. And when you touch down, you're doing about 200, 250 miles per hour. And immediately the the brakes would come on, on a normal um, flight, but we weren't slowing down. And I immediately realized something was wrong. Now I could see where I was sitting. I was looking, if I looked forward to my red, I could see my captain. And I heard him saying, no brakes, no brakes, break me. So at that point that my, my co-pilot would be trying to stand up on the brakes. And he said, no brakes, I didn't panic at that point because I know we have a reverse thruster. It's a backup system where when they pull back on the thrust from the engines, the thrust would go from the, would reverse and would actually could stop you on a dime. And when I watched him do that, nothing happened. And now my anxiety was rising as I heard my pilot scream, hold on, hold on. And what they could see that I could not see at the end of this runway uh, unlike most runways, which most runways have grass or maybe gravel or even water. This one had a 60 foot cliff, so we were going off the end of the cliff. I just kind of tucked my tailbone down and pulled my knees up and just braced, and I screamed, "Hold on!" And so my patient and her husband—there was nothing anybody could do. We just tried to hold on.
0: Were you? Were all of you seat belted in?
3: Yes, yes, absolutely, seat belted in. And all the equipment was seat belted in, but the, the crash was so severe. It tore the plane to bit. You know, we, we were all still in our seats at the end of the crash, but things inside the aircraft had gotten totally torn away. Uh, if she would have been on the stretcher, it probably would have killed me because the stretcher actually kind of came forward and hit me.
0: This is Scott. What you'll hear next is the last couple of minutes of audio for this flight from the cockpit voice recorder.
2: And gear down before landing check there. Gears coming down. Three green, no red, engine sync is off, anti-skid. Okay.
0: Landing and taxi lights are on, air ignitions are coming on, flaps are set 10, hydraulic pressure is good, 20 flaps, flaps come in 20, autopilot's off, yaw dampener and full flaps will complete the list, you want the thrust reversers,
2: Arming 1 and 2. Runway is clear.
0: Rep and twenty, holding steady. And full flaps please. Full flaps yep. Yaw Daniel will complete the list. Rep and fifteen, holding steady. Short final, three green, no red. Flaps are set full. Rep
2: ten. on rest.
3: when I realized we were going off the end of the runway, the captain and the pilot and the co-pilot would later tell me there was no control over this aircraft. So our nose was pitching right into the ditch. There was about a 15 foot ditch. As we came off the end of the runway, we're heading into the ditch. And as we come off that runway, there was a huge wooden ILS structure um, for instrument approach. And our right wing would, crashed into this because I remember smashing my head into the part wooden partition between myself and my co-pilot on that impact but at that point that tore our right wing away from the aircraft so half of the fuel was torn away from this aircraft and then we hit the the highway and it sheared off our gear and we went across six lanes of this highway at this point we were on fire amazingly this is a six lane thoroughfare through lexington kentucky and it's one o'clock on friday before uh, labor day and there uh, there were no cars that got hit there were cars everywhere but there were two red lights that happened to be red at this exact time and we slid across the six lanes of of highway and just this screeching metal and smelling smoke and feeling disoriented and then we came to a, an abrupt stop
0: when you were going across the the that road, the you were the it was just sliding on the belly of the plane. The wheels weren't engaged anymore.
3: Correct. It was just metal on concrete. A horrific sound.
0: Oh, I'll yeah. Bet. But let me take you back to, to the where you went over the uh, the sixty foot drop. Yes. When you looked forward, could you see that drop coming? No. So. So you didn't know you were going to drop.
3: I did not. They could see it. I was looking at a door that that has the gear to open it. So there's no window in that door. And I could look forward and see my pilot, but I couldn't see the front cockpit glass.
0: So, I mean, it's bad enough if you can see that you're going to drop, but if it, all of a sudden you're, you get that sensation of falling. I mean, that's literally, that's like going off the top of a six story building.
3: Right, right. And... When we hit down, I felt intense pain in my legs and in my back. It did break my back. I had a fracture of a vertebrae, and the force of it was so great that my lower leg bones pushed up behind my upper leg bones. My tib, fib went behind my fever and actually tore all the supporting ligaments of my knees so I had no connection between my lower leg bones and my upper leg bone, the femur, And in the process of doing that, it ruptured the huge artery that runs to give you uh, blood flow to your lower extremities, the popliteal artery. And so actually, my toes were were kind of turned opposite of my body, and I had no ability to stand or move my legs.
0: So you couldn't stand up. And when the plane came to a stop, what what did you do at that point? Or what what sounds were you hearing?
3: Uh, The sounds I was hearing, I was hearing the distinct crackling of fire. And I could smell the smoke and the smoke was heavy inside the cockpit. And I heard moaning and I looked forward and I could see my captain, but he was unconscious kind of draped over the the yoke and there was blood dripping from his head. and, And then I could see my patient and she had just kind of collapsed forward and wasn't moving. And I could not see her husband who was directly behind her and the only reason I can think is maybe because of the smoke. I don't really know why I couldn't see him. but i had uh, I had like the feeling of overwhelming terror just rise up inside of me. and I, I I said, and we've trained we train for these kind of emergencies, you know? And so I said, okay, I have to I have to respond. I have to get us out of this aircraft. And I I had heard my co-pilot moaning. I said, Jim, Jim, are you there? Are you okay? And he's like, no. And he said, my back's broken. He could not move. So literally there was nobody else to do anything but me. And that's when I tried in all of my might to stand up because all I had to do was stand up, lift the gear and push the door open. And I would have been able to get out and start pulling people out. But again, because of those injuries I suffered with my legs, I tried two times to stand up. And I'm like, why can't I stand up? thought it was my buckle. I checked my buckle again and tried with all my might to stand up and could not. And it was at that point, I realized in my strength, I could do nothing. And so I just started praying. and I started crying out, dear God, in Jesus name, please save us. Dear God, in Jesus name, please save us. And my captain would later tell me, that he felt somebody gently shaking him. Now, it wasn't me and it wasn't my co-pilot. And he could hear me praying behind him. And he said that there was somebody saying, open the doors, Mile, open the door. And so he came back. Now, the smoke had to have been so thick because I never saw him. And he would have stood right in front of me, opened the door and fell out. People from the cars that were nearby came and one man had a fire extinguisher and he was trying to suppress the flames. Well, that was kind of futile, but he did take the fire extinguisher and he was smashing against the cockpit because they could not open the door of this aircraft. And the emergency door at the back was engulfed in flames. So the only door, the only escape out of this burning inferno was the front door right in front of me. And they could not open it from the outside. One man broke his hand in the process. Then Miles opened the door and fell out. And by this time there was the crash fire rescue there at the airport and they had to come out and around onto this Versailles road, this six-lane highway. But there was one firefighter who was in the truck that shoots foam. And he said he heard parallel the runway. So he got down to the end of the runway, right, right where the gate was, like right at the hill that we came off. And he was shooting foam across the six lanes of, uh, of highway trying to suppress the, the fire.
0: Does it even shoot that far?
3: it's amazing. I don't know how far it shoots. I mean, my husband's a firefighter and he's like, die. It's amazing. The other amazing thing was that the wind direction changed within just a minute because later on we would see security camera footage on the top of the the runway there. There was a parking lot adjacent to it that had a shot like every 30 seconds. So when you saw us there was a picture of the aircraft going off the end of the runway, and then you see a fireball, and the smoke is going from the front of the aircraft to the back. And in the next camera shot, it's like the wind did a one eighty, and the and the 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 flames were going away from us. The, the smoke was going away from us.
2: I
0: don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. or go wild and have CookUnity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing.
1: Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what.
0: Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try.
1: Trust your gut with Seeds DS-01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds DS-01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com
3: what. Code twenty five. What it was absolutely amazing. So they grabbed my patient, they pulled her out, and I think I was in and out of consciousness at this point. Um, I do remember this man picking me up, and then I remember laying out there. And I looked over, and I could see that my my patient was unconscious. And I said, "Could somebody start CPR?" And there was an off duty um, nurse there, and she was valiantly trying, but it was to no avail. And then I was screaming for my co-pilot, my co-pilot, get my co-pilot. He was trapped inside of that burning aircraft. Um, They had gotten the patient out. They had gotten her husband out. Miles was out on his own strength. And then they pulled me out. And Jimmy is six foot and he was about 280 pounds, just big guy.
0: And that's the pilot.
3: That's, that would be the the co-pilot. Miles was the captain and he was the one that had the head injury, but was able to get out and, and open the door and get out. But he was very disoriented. He didn't know where he was, that he couldn't tell them how many people are on board. Now, my co-pilot, who is he's very conscious, looks back and realizes that the flames are coming forward. And he was also a firefighter. And he was like, oh, my God, I'm going to I'm going to die in a fire in an, in an airplane. But this man, right before the, 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 air, the firefighters got there, there was an off-duty firefighter who worked at Lexington Airport as a security guard. And he was also a horse jockey. So this guy is only like five foot six, 140, 150 pounds. And a couple weeks prior, he had failed a strength agility test at the fire station. He gets in the aircraft, Carl is his name, and he put his arms around my co-pilot and lifted him out like he was a rag doll.
0: Adrenaline. It's a heck of a drug.
3: Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes. Yes.
0: You know what I'm, I'm picturing is these people that were at the red light. In their car. Oh, my God. You know, I mean, one minute they're just sitting at a red light on their way to work or maybe leaving work right. to go for the long weekend. And the next minute they're pulling people out of a burning plane.
3: Exactly. I, I can't imagine what they thought. And it was amazing to me how many people ran to a burning aircraft because, I mean, the, I don't understand why it didn't explode. And the, just the bravery to... to Come to people's aid that they had no clue who we were. It was amazing. We did get to meet some of them. They had a a reunion. They had a um, ceremony up there months later to thank all the policemen, the firefighters, and the civilians that came. And I was I was actually able to walk. I was still walking with a cane at that point. Came back up there to to say thank you and and hug people and and have them retell what had happened because you know so parts of my memory were were um, just like little chunks and i you know because of the trauma and the shock of it all it was hard for me to put all the pieces together and it was very helpful in my healing emotionally and spiritually to be able to talk with these people and just realize how miraculous this whole event was
0: oh that had to be an incredible reunion yeah so you, you got out of the plane, or everybody got out of the plane, and, and then what?
3: Right. So um, I remember lying there on this grassy knoll, and um, one woman was actually, she came and she was praying over me. I was coming in and out of consciousness, and I asked if I could use her phone, and she dialed the number for our for care flight. And I told uh, the dispatcher what had happened, and I didn't at this point know that we had gone off a 60 foot cliff. I didn't know everybody's extent of injuries. And I told her, I think I've broken my legs. I just knew I couldn't move my legs. Then I asked this woman to call my husband who was at the fire station. And he answered and I told him, I said, baby, we went off the runway. Um, There was an accident. I'm okay. I think I broke my legs. And then the woman took the phone because she could see that my toes were going opposite of my body and I was going in and out of consciousness. And she said, this is far worse than broken legs. And then she laid her body over me because that that truck that was shooting the foam, she was shielding me from the foam getting all in my face. And then I heard um, the helicopter. I mean, it's amazing that we were in Lexington just the week prior. I had had gone to the Dominican Republic and there's nothing like that. There's no level one trauma center in the Dominican Republic. So if it would have happened there, it would have been a total different outcome. But the helicopter landed and... When, when you come up on a scene, you, ha- you do triage. So you go and you look at the patient that is, has the highest, highest degree of injuries, the most critically injured, but still has a chance to live. Obviously, my patient died on impact. Now, they had gotten Jim out. We were all laying there, and I was telling them, my my, my co-pilot, his back is broken, and they were taking me and putting me on the stretcher. They were putting me on the board, and I'm like, no, no, no. And then I started thinking to myself, my God, if I am worse than a broken back, this is not good.
0: Did you feel, uh, I mean, you are a nurse. That's your job. Right. Did you feel any obligation from a medical standpoint to help the others that were there?
3: absolutely everything in my heart. I was, you know, I, I was, it was so difficult to see my patient lying there and I could do nothing. And, and knowing that my co-pilot's back was broken and I had no idea the extent of the patient's husband's injuries. He was critically injured as well, just not as life-threatening as my injuries were. So he was taken by ambulance. My co-pilot was taken by ambulance and my captain was taken by ambulance and I was flown in the helicopter. I remember looking up and seeing two flight personnel in the same color blue ju- jumpsuit flight suits that I use. And, um, they were starting two large bore IVs and I'm sitting, it was like an out of body experience. I'm like, no, no, I, that's what I do.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's a role reversal. Ugh,
3: it was, it was insane. I, I went immediately from being that critical care nurse to the critically injured patient, you know, and I'm an, I'm an, in charge, take charge kind of person. And it was like, I can do nothing. It is all out of my, my scope of um, anything I can do. Remember being on the aircraft and I was in so much pain. And so they were giving me something for the pain. And it was not a long flight at all. I think we were, it was less than 10 minutes till we touched down. And I was going in and out of consciousness because I was bleeding actually into my, into my legs. I was hemorrhaging. It's called compartment syndrome because of those major arteries. I was actually bleeding down into the tissues around all my muscles in my lower legs. And um, I remember laying in the trauma bay and I could hear a nurse saying she has no pulses in her feet, no pulses in her feet. And I'm thinking, oh, dear God, they thought I had femur fractures because of the deformity to my legs. But it was really that I had pulled away all those ligaments. That's what made the deformity. So my lower leg bones were turned around. But in that process, like I said, it had ruptured the arteries and I was bleeding down into my legs. Uh, And so I remember um, having intense pain and um, they were doing, you know, x-rays and, and starting IVs. And I, in the process of fracturing my, my back, I punctured a lung. So they were bringing all the equipment to, to put a chest tube in and I have put chest tubes in, in my life to save people's lives, and I was like, "I'm alert. You are not putting a chest tube into me while I'm alert. Just hang on." And but I remember hearing my my co-pilot, Jimmy, and he was actually in the in the trauma bay next to mine, and I could hear him, and I said, "Please, could somebody give him something for pain? Give him something for pain." Um, the nurse that was taking care of me, her name was Lee, and the nurse that was taking care of Jimmy was Tammy, and um, Tammy. Came over to my nurse, Lee, at one point. There's got to be some comic relief. And I guess she had medicated me so I could hear, but I was just, my eyes were closed. And she said to my nurse, Whale, in her sweet Kentucky draw, how's she doing? You think she's going to make it? And and my nurse, Lee, said damn, she's built like a brick shithouse. I think she's going to be fine. <laughs> I remember thinking, don't you know? Hearing's the last to oh, Were you people talking about me? Oh. Did, did you ever tell
0: them that you could hear them what they said?
3: Oh, yes. We're like best friends now. She laughed so hard. But this nurse, unbelievable. She went with me up into x-ray because they had to do an arteriogram where they inject dye to figure out where I was bleeding. And sure enough, it was bad it was my popliteal arteries and so they were going to have to send me to emergency surgery and lee stayed there with me she held my hand now she was the er nurse she didn't have to do that she came up there with me and at that time i remember a phone ringing in the background and um my son who was 18 at the time uh he was dating a girl whose father was a fireman and that sweet girl's now my daughter-in-law but they got through to the trauma center and they actually put them up to they, they put the call through And so they said, my, my nurse Lee said, she needs to talk to her son before she goes anywhere. And I could hear my son and he was just sobbing. He said, mom, mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I said, baby, I love you. I'm going to be okay. And he said, mom, listen, listen, we we've called the church and the prayer chain has started. So, you know, when things happen, people call our church, then there would, their deacons would be notified. and, And then they would notify people under them. And it was like, You know, telephone. You just one person calls the next person. So I felt this enormous peace that passes all understanding, and um, I had to sign a consent that said I was going into surgery, and they were going to try to do what we call a femoral popliteal bypass, where they took a vein out of my leg to make a new detour around the broken arteries to restore circulation to my lower legs. But if that was not successful, they may have to amputate my legs. So. That was really heavy having to sign that. And then I remember saying, could we pray? (laughs) And there's people running around in surgical garb and everybody just freezes. Yes, yeah, we can pray. And then they're all looking at each other. You pray. No, you (laughs) pray. I'm thinking, oh my God, not a Baptist in the bunch. Come on, somebody pray. But So I think I, I remember praying out loud and then I think they gave me something. And then I was just probably praying in my mind. But I remember saying, God, you brought me this far. And I know that you are with me. And if it be your will, may I have my legs when I come out? And if not God, then just give me the grace to handle it. And um, that's the last thing I remember. I was in surgery for 13 hours and they had to replace my circulating blood volume. I had about 12 to 13 units of blood and plasma and clotting factors. And they almost lost me twice because of the extensive bleeding then I came out and, and while this was going on, uh, my company flew my husband up and they flew Jim's wife up. And my husband said, every hour on the hour, somebody from the OR would come out and, and give an update on Jim and myself. And um, after the 13 hours, they, they came out and the vascular surgeon and the orthopedic surgeon were there. And the orthopedic surgeon told my husband, That's the worst injuries I've ever seen to somebody's knees. I doubt she'll ever walk walk again. She's got a broken back. We haven't even been able to address that. And then the vascular surgeon said, oh my word, her her veins are bigger than most people's arteries. I was able to get a good bypass and her her toes are pink. I'm really happy with that. And so my husband just fell to his knees and he thanked God that I was still there. And um, my pastor at the time, uh, Dr. Scott Boggs, actually felt led and he flew up and he got that there not long after I got out of surgery. And um, a friend that I went to high school with had heard what had happened and she actually lived in Lexington and she had been taking chemo treatments for breast and lung cancer. And one of our other friends called her and she actually showed up at the hospital and was there with my husband when he saw me for the first time. And She told me that he just—he was telling. I was on a ventilator, and I don't remember any of this, obviously. But he was telling me, you know, babe, I'm here, and the kids are on their way, and and they just they just prayed over me, and then she took him outside, and my pastor told me he just prayed over me for a long period of time, and just started praying the psalms out loud over my body, and he said that my my legs—they they had to put these steel fixator rods. They drill them into your leg bones, and then they're connected. to a long steel rod on the outside. It's called external fixators. Because again, there was no connection between my upper and lower leg bones. All my ligaments were torn away. So they had to have a way to keep my legs intact. And there was bleeding that would not stop. And he said that they had to change the bandages like two or three times while he was there. And he he felt like, you know, I, he, he felt a peace come over him that I was going to make it. And um, he was able to go out and he saw my son and who was in the hallway and he was just distraught thinking that, you know, I wasn't going to make it. And he told my son at that point, he said, Chad, your mom's going to make it. And not only is she's going to make it, she's going to dance at your wedding. And years later, he was there at my son's wedding to see me dance with my son, which I just think is a beautiful
0: Unbelievable. thing.
3: I was in ICU for a week and I told you I had a punctured lung. They had me on a ventilator. And because of the smoke inhalation, I'm sure, and because of all the massive amounts of fluid, my lungs took a terrible injury. And I was in what we call acute respiratory distress syndrome. They had to have me on high, high levels of oxygen, high pressures. My muscles broke down because of the massive trauma. It's called rhabdomyolysis. And then as that circulates through your blood, it gets into your kidneys and it clogged up my kidneys. I went into acute renal failure. My blood was having a hard time clotting, and I had excessive bleeding, which is called disseminated intravascular coagulation. And as a critical care nurse, I know that each one of those things has an 80% mortality. You put them together, it's called multi organ dysfunction syndrome, it has a 95% mortality. I also, at one point, shot a temperature of 104, and they were afraid I was septic. And so, what I'm saying is, (laughs) I went against all odds because I should not be here. I should not be here.
0: 13 hours of surgery. And you said that yes. didn't even address your broken back.
3: It did not. They, they would later, after I finally got out of ICU, I was on a step-down unit. And they thought that they might have to do some surgery to my back. And they wanted at that point to go back, open up my knees because all the ligaments were torn away. And all I could keep thinking was, I want to go home. I just want to go home. And um, my best friends had flown up and have a nurse and a respiratory therapist. And at one point they were actually able to get me in a wheelchair with my legs extended on these ramps of the wheelchair so I could go see my co-pilot who was paralyzed from his waist down. And one good thing about being a flight nurse was I knew where all the great trauma centers and rehab centers are. We've flown to most of them. So they were flying him to... um, a spinal Shepherd Spinal Institute in Atlanta, and he was there for months and months. And I just wanted to go home, so they they got it together and um, my medical director, Dr. Mike Mazafaro, and Linda, my respiratory therapist, and Michael Lynn, another flight nurse, they flew up on another jet and they brought me home. And um, that was uh, September twelfth, two thousand and three. And I was in a trauma center here at Bayfront and um, th- the orthopedic surgeon came in and he said, Diane, I've never seen somebody with that injury live. He had, he had taken care of a young man who uh, jumped off the, the skyway and um, had those injuries. He didn't live. Anyway, he said that the, the force which that ripped those ligaments apart was so intense that it took bone fragments. And he said, you know, if we let you just let, let your body heal for a while, and give you rehab. Let's see how well your knees will do. Let's see if the ligaments will, will um, you know scar down and then we'll reevaluate it. And the vascular surgeon was very pleased with my progress. Now, the one surgeon did note, um, they had to do what we call fasciotomies to save my life up in Lexington where they have to slice down both sides of your calves to allow the pressure to release. So I had like four inch deep gouges that were eight inches long down both sides of my lower legs called fasciotomies. And in doing so, they cut through one of the major nerves down there, your peroneal nerve. So my right foot was dropped. So nobody really thought I was going to be able to, you know, regain a normal function. And so I, they wanted me to stay there at a rehab in, in, in place rehab. And I said, please, I just want to go home. So they arranged for me to come home. They got a hospital bed here. They had all the equipment they needed and my family took care of me. And three times a week, this wheelchair van would pick me up and take me to an outpatient rehab facility where for two hours, two grueling hours, um, they would try to get function back into my, into my knees and strength back into my muscles. And there was a pool there and they would lower me down in this, in this contraption, like a, it was like a plastic chair and they would slowly lower me into the water. And once I was in the water, you know, you're buoyant. And so I didn't have to hold up all my own body weight. And um, I would slowly learn how to take steps again. But it was excruciating. It was not easy. So
0: this was the process that you were about to go through to hopefully with the, the ideal end result being that you could walk again.
3: Exactly. Exactly. And I remember saying to the orthopedic surgeon up in Lexington, I said, you know, I I said, how long will it be till I can, you know, walk again? And I remember him saying, I don't know. I don't know if you'll walk again. And I remember very clearly saying to him, "I, I, you know, walk again. I'm going to go back to teaching aerobics. I want to run again. And I remember saying to him, looking at him and saying, you know what, you can doubt me, but don't you doubt the God that pulled me out of that burning aircraft when I called on his name and if he says I walk, I walk and if he says I run, I run. And I think that was such a challenge to me and I've always been a person that likes to be very athletic and I and I rise to the occasion of a challenge, but this was by far the hardest thing I have ever had to do in my life.
1: Wow,
0: and I can I can imagine from his standpoint when you tell him that that he's thinking well, that's great. You can think that, but I know from a medical standpoint, it's not too likely. But exactly. So I I understand why he would try to manage your expectations. Of course.
3: Absolutely. I don't blame him one bit. In fact, I think that that helped me. It, it's it, it inspired me, and it was great to go back there later and actually walk in with a cane and show him that I was able to walk. And he said, "I love when patients prove me wrong."
0: <laughs> yeah. You started on a, quite a journey of getting back on your feet again. I, yes. I saw in the, in the, the video and I'll post a link to this video so people can watch it. As you were starting to learn how to use your legs again, you had these rods that were embedded in the front of your legs from, uh, I mean the entire length of your leg. Right. And what was the purpose but- of them? What are they called? And what did they do?
3: Okay, so those are called external fixators. So because all those supporting ligaments in my knees were torn away, there was no way to hold the lower leg bones to the upper lo- leg bones. So they drilled two holes in my femur and two holes in my lower leg bones, brought rods out, and then one long straight rod um, through all of them, kind of like an erector set. I was, that's <laughs>
0: exactly what I was thinking. You look like a walking <laughs> erector set. <laughs>
3: I tell you, they were very painful. Every time you move, the the metal would just, you know, rip your flesh from your bone out to your skin. Um, I still have scars from where those were in my legs, but I tell you, they did that. They did what they were supposed to do, and for that, I'm grateful.
0: Those rods are what held the top part of your leg to the bottom part of your leg, exactly. and so right. you just—they had to be there long enough for those two sections of leg to kind of grow back together?
3: For the ligaments to kind of heal down in order to give enough strength for me to stand again. I did have four more surgeries, and one of those surgeries was he had to give me a ligament from a um, bank, a cadaver ligament, but, and then he was able to use a thermal probe to kind of shrink your ligaments are kind of a rubberish, if you will. And if you stretch them too far, then they're too lax and they're no good. But because the orthopedic surgeon here, Dr. Coco Eaton was so amazing and gave me the time for it to heal. He only had to replace one of them where prior to that, they wanted to replace all four in both knees. And he only had, then he had to just kind of shrink down the other ones. And then one of the most difficult things was trying to get your knees to bend again. I mean, there was so much damage done to the knee itself. They, they, they told me I would probably have to have a couple knee replacements, and um, I haven't had one knee replacement. And I am running and biking. and. Um,
0: That's incredible. The, it's amazing. The, the knee itself is a very complex joint. And without any injury, (laughs) just from wear and tear over time, people have to have them replaced. But yeah, I was back to that video that I was watching. It shows like one minute you're creeping along or trying to walk, holding yourself up with your hands on the bars and learning to walk. And then in the video, it kind of flashes forward (laughs) and you're instructing an aerobics class like nothing ever (laughs) happened. How much time (laughs) went by before that could happen?
3: It was, it was over a year. Yeah. It, it was, I had the external fixes in for at least eight weeks and then it was rehab for over a year. And at one point I convinced work comp that it would be cheaper for me to just go to one of the gyms that I taught at and work with a physical therapy assistant one-on-one than to, for them to keep paying for this rehab. So uh, it, I actually was at the gym where I taught aerobics and um, one day and this was probably about a year after they, somebody didn't show up to teach a step class. And I just smiled and I said, well, let me just see what I can do. And I remember putting the step on the floor and saying, ladies, if I have to stop, just keep going and I'll just just talk you through it. Probably one of the best days of my life when I got to teach that class, Uh, sweat pouring off my body and it was painful, but it was amazing because I realized that I had come so far, like I had really done what in reality, I shouldn't have been able to do. It was miraculous.
0: And I can imagine the ladies that were in that class, boy, not a one of them better complain about how much it hurt,
3: right? <laughs> exactly. And you know what was cool was some of those ladies in that class and, and people from all over, they just stepped up to help us. There were several several groups that put spaghetti dinners together to raise funds for my family. Um, my best friend, Linda Turner, who worked with me as a critical care nurse years ago at a hospital. That hospital had a bake sale to raise money. The fire department, my husband worked at Pennell's Park Fire Department. The guys worked for him so that he could be at home with me. and our church just everybody just stepped up and really filled in the gap. It was it was so. I don't even know there's not even a great word for it it just blew our minds we were we were just in awe of the outpouring of goodness from so many people
0: Did you go back to being a flight nurse?
3: I did not. Unfortunately, it was at a time when the the company ended up folding and I think that this was the the kind of the nail in the coffin. I did fly. I have flown since I'm not afraid to fly, but it's wild while this was going on, uh, one of the a physician that I ran into, a cardiologist said, hey, Di, you know, you really should think about going back and finishing your degree. You would be an awesome teacher. And so I applied for a scholarship and I got the scholarship. And at that time, while I was doing physical rehab, I was doing my bachelor's online at the very college where I had graduated, St. Pete College. And um, then I started working there part-time and went and finished my master's at University of Central Florida. And so for the last part of my career, over 10 years, I was a professor of nursing, which I absolutely loved. And I just retired from full time in December and I'm still an adjunct and do some online teaching. And so it's, I was able to use my years of experience and my education to now hopefully inspire and empower the next generation of nurses coming after us.
0: Do you have any lingering injuries, any reminders of the crash?
3: I do. So my arteries, I mean, I've got great blood supply to my legs, but my veins were damaged. So if I stand for prolonged periods of time, I get what what I like to call cankles, where your thighs look like your ankles or your ankles look like your thighs. I just get swollen down there. And that's painful. If I sit for any period of time, my knees get stiff. And on occasion, my knee will kind of shift out of, of place. And that's painful.
0: When that happens, do you kind of just pop it back into place or what do you do?
3: I stretch exactly. I stretch and move until I feel like it's back in where it needs to be. I I get massage regularly. I have my chiropractor's my best friend, Doctor Steve Wyckoff. So yeah, and I never did have to have surgery on my back, thank God. Lots of therapy, you know, through massage, through chiropractics, through acupuncture, physical therapy. I I, I really am back to where almost I have no lingering injuries from that, but. Another thing that is amazing, when I really think about it, we talk about the gate theory of pain, where you know you have the perception as it rises up to your brain, and then you feel it, and then you respond to it. And when I feel that pain, it's almost like I can go in mentally and say, "I'm just going to choose to not focus on that pain, and I'll focus on something else, and then I don't feel it."
0: That is a great. Uh, that's a talent.
3: It's a gift. I, there's no other way to say it because I'm not on any kind of medications.
0: How about the other people—the pilot, the co-pilot, the patient's husband? What has been their long-term outcome from this?
3: Yes, um, the patient's husband. I, when I got to see him, and again, this is 17 years ago, um, went out to lunch with him, and he had had knee surgery, but he was he was mobile and getting around. And he would he told me that he was a P51 Mustang pilot. And he had been shot down twice in World War II. And I jokingly said to him, you know, everything happens in threes. You should have told me I wouldn't have got on the plane with you. (laughs) Such a nice man. Um, My captain was back to flying. He had a concussion, but no lingering long-term effect. And my co-pilot, unfortunately, lost his career as a firefighter and a pilot. He does walk, but he walks with a cane. So his injuries were the most life altering, if you will. He's a great guy we're still buds and um, yeah it was it was very tough well, on yeah
0: him. and you guys have all been through an, an incredible experience together which kind of bonds people it does do you ever did they ever figure out what was the outcome as far as why did the brakes fail
3: well so the NTSB did a, a thorough investigation and they determined it was pilot air this was only the third time that I had flown with this captain he was a f-16 pilot. And F-16 pilots aerodynamically break. And in this Learjet, now again, I told you this Learjet was not my company's. It actually belonged to another company. Um, just a side note, uh, the Bin Laden family actually owned this aircraft at some time, point in history. Not Osama, but the other Bin Laden family here in the United States. And this company, I won't state who it was, and they, they were managing this aircraft. And so the captain worked for them. And they what and Mr. Babs, who was a pilot, says, don't you remember when we touched down, we touched down too light and we actually came up and came back down in a Learjet. You have to land with enough force that it it enables what we call a squat switch. And then that would allow the brakes to deploy and the reverse thrusters. So because we landed light um, and we didn't do a go around, there were no brakes. There was no reverse thrusters. That is what the NTSB's final decision was. Hmm.
0: So, even though it was considered pilot error, he was still able to get back and continue flying
3: right, right. And again, I don't blame anybody you know i don't I'm not a a pilot, and um I just know that I'm grateful that we're all alive.
0: I know you're a person of faith. Can you kind of just summarize what's your explanation of of how you survived or why you survived, and maybe your did it change your outlook on life at all?
3: Yes, I, I had accepted Jesus as my Savior at his young child, age seven, and walked with him and loved him and, and um, have been a disciple of Jesus for a long time. But I realized that I was a kind of person that was very much in control and I and I prayed for God's strength and grace and stuff, but I did things in my own power a lot. And I just remember that I had tried everything in my own power to to, to get up and get out of that aircraft, and it wasn't until I realized I could do nothing on my own. It was at that point that I realized the only thing I could do was cry out. And I, and verses came to my mind where it says, cry to me in your day of trouble and I will hear you and answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. And God has, he has proven himself so faithful. He met all of our needs. He met our financial needs. He met our emotional needs. He proved to my children and to my family that he is a God of miracles, that he is still in the business of miracles and that he keeps his promises to many generations, um, that he's a loving God. You know, I remember so many times at night I would get these doubts and I, I I truly believe it was Satan whispering in my ear like, you can't, you won't. This is the end of this. And and I would just start fighting back with God's holy word. I would, I would start quoting scriptures and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And there's power in that. And so I realized that, you know, I had walked this life of faith, but it was a very easy life. You know, I had a blessed life. I had a, a charmed life, if you will. And and it took this to make me realize that my faith is everything. I am nothing without my faith in Jesus. And that that my faith is real, that he's there. And and it just proved it beyond a shadow of doubt. And I don't take any day for granted. I try to take just joy in the small things. I love sitting out my husband and I in the morning and seeing the sunrise and having our quiet time of, of prayer and devotion together. And we've been blessed now with grandchildren and just try not to take anything for granted. And uh, I've been able to use this story to, to share into many people at many different occasions. And it always, it always tends to give people hope. And I want that. I want that beyond anything. I want people to realize there is hope no matter what situation we are in. There is a God that loves us, loves us enough that he sent his son to come and die, die so that we could, through through his precious blood, we could have a personal relationship with the God of creation. And, that, and that's, to me, that's what it's all about.
0: And there may be people listening to this. Who are going through some a similar situation where they're having a hard time with with therapy after an accident or injury, and so on the show notes for this episode, we'll have I'll, I'm going to put a link to that video that I mentioned so that people can kind of get an idea. It shows a, a depiction of the a cartoon sort of depiction of the plane how it crashed and, and went across the road and everything. Uh, also talking uh, with you talking about the telling the story, but I'll we'll also have your email address. On the website so if anyone wants to contact you uh you're okay with them emailing you right
3: absolutely if i could encourage anybody if i could come alongside and pray for anybody um if i if, if there's a group that would like me to come speak um it'd be more than i'd be more than happy to do that
0: and you're not you're right here in the tampa bay area where i am we're not too far from each other yes yeah. We are not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Diana, I sure appreciate you coming on here. I'm glad you made it through. And uh, what a, what an awesome story. Thanks so much for telling us.
3: Thanks, Scott. I really appreciate you having me.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. As I mentioned in the interview, Diana lives not far from me, and I was able to meet her and her husband, Ed, in person recently. Ed told me about getting that phone call from the crash site. They are pretty amazing people. And as promised, I want to let you know this podcast now has merch. That's short for merchandise, if you didn't already know that. The first thing we're offering is a bumper sticker. And if you get a bumper sticker, what I'd like you to do is put it on your car and send me a picture of it. I'm going to have a place on the website where I show a picture of your bumper sticker on your car. Your license plate would be blacked out, though. You can see what it looks like and order your own bumper stickers at whatwasthatlike.com forward slash merch, M-E-R-C-H. And to end this episode, I'm going to play a conversation I had recently on another podcast. My friend Glenn Hebert is the owner of the Horse Radio Network. It's based in Ocala, Florida, and he does a morning show with his co-host Jamie called Horses in the Morning. And yes, it's all about horses. So if you're into horses, you should definitely check it out at horsesinthemorning.com. But recently, Glenn was highlighting some other podcasts and show hosts, and they had me on to talk about what was that like. They're great people. We had a fun conversation. It's about 15 minutes long, and that's what will end this episode. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks.
2: We're going to switch gears a little bit. Let me uh, call the next guest on Skype. We're going to add him into the conversation. And this is a podcasting friend of mine. We've actually had him on the show before. I'm not sure if Jamie was on that time or not. Um, <clears throat> but one of the things we're going to do, at, and again on Wednesday, is we are going to have other podcasts. because It is a week. It's International Podcast Day coming up, and we do like to highlight other podcasts as well. Well, coming up is a friend of mine out of Florida here by the name of Scott Johnson, who does a cool podcast. And he wants your help. So that's why we're going to get him on now. Hi, Scott. Hello. How are hey. you? Doing well. How are you? You're on with Jamie and I, and we are on live. So thanks for joining us. Hello. I'm happy to be here. It's always nice to have a podcaster on. Your sound's a little better than the last guest's phone. So that, oh, okay. That's nice. <laughs> Scott, sounds great. Scott does a couple of shows. First of all, tell everybody about your computer show for the nerds out there. Well, I have a. I've been doing a
0: computer business uh, from here in my home office in Safety Harbor, Florida, for about the past twenty years, and I have a, uh, a podcast called The Computer Tutor, and uh, I just do some kind of computer tip or trick or security alert or something like that every couple of weeks, and uh, that's mainly you know for not not so much computer people,
2: but. Uh, Regular everyday users. Yeah, so, I, you know, I we do everything to it in it and, plain English. I listen to it and I understand it. So there's, so it's <laughs> got to be for regular people. That's my criteria. I got to make it simple enough for Glenn. Glenn, okay. yeah, that's right. By the way, I need a cord <laughs> for an IBM monitor or a Dell monitor. I need to talk to you about that. You just send All me. right, we'll talk. Um, now, there's the other show that you do that I've been addicted to since day one, and I can get through most episodes and. Unlike our show, Jamie, where you have to listen to several of them to kind of get the hang of it, that's not the way with this show. It's called What Was That Like? And I know that we've had John before, but remind people who haven't heard what the show's about.
0: Well, the basic premise of this show is that each episode, I talk with some regular person who has been through some type of extremely unusual situation and we cover a huge, well, you know, we cover a huge variety yeah. of situations. Yeah. from, a, from That's a-
4: right. We had somebody on who, maybe it was you, who had been bit- bitten by a snake.
0: That was, yes, that was, I was the one that was on the show and talked about that. I, that was, my guest had gotten, had been bitten by a rattlesnake. And uh, yeah, they were just out working in the yard. And uh, 30 minutes later, he's literally saying goodbye to his family uh, thinking he wasn't going to. Survive.
2: How about, I mean, so. there was a, the one that stuck with me is there was a lady who is an expert parachuter <laughs> and her shoot mm-hmm. didn't do so well. Uh, and that one stuck with me. She lived through it. But whew, that one, yeah. for some reason, oh. that one just stuck with me. It, you know what I
0: think? and it And me as well. But I think part of the reason for that was that her teenage daughter was there with her at yes. the landing zone that day. And she saw her mom hit the ground and, um, that, 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 and the funny thing is her mom, Sue, her primary concern was for her daughter to not see her groaning in pain. And rather than, you know, am I going to be paralyzed for the rest of my life? That was her concern. Don't let my daughter see me scream. Let me know when she's getting close and I'll stop moaning. (laughs) So, but yeah, she, she survived and has since
2: gone on to complete uh, a lot of other amazing things. And then, I mean, these shows, Jamie, go from everything from that to The Guy Who Ate His Own Foot... Um, which I did what? not get through that one I just couldn't do it to people who've been held hostage for years I mean he's had mm-hmm. the, I don't know where you find to people involved in mass shootings I mean it's just mm-hmm. been a wide variety of stuff and it's called what was that like if you look at any podcast mm-hmm. player I'm telling you this one once he, And you do a, such a good job hosting this you can tell you've done your research you've talked to the people and then you get people on around the people to talk about what their experience was so it, it's very very well done. I know this one takes some work.
0: It does. It takes a. It takes some work, and uh, but boy, I love it. And and really, it was created out of my own curiosity. I would. This is the kind of story that I wanted to hear, and I couldn't find any other podcast doing stuff like this.
2: So I figured, okay, I'll make it myself. Now, we need your help, our listeners' help out there, because you want to get a horse story. But it can't be any just my horse fell on me story. This has to be we fell down a canyon together and then we hiked out or, you know, my horse drug me back or some kind of it has to be a little tiny bit bizarre. Um, am I getting that well, right? Well, a lot bizarre. That's a lot okay, bizarre too. is good. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot of bizarre ones. Um, So we need your help. If you have one of those kind of stories, what what exactly are you looking for? Well, it has to be
0: something that, well, you know what? The best way to for, is for people to look at my past episode titles and see if their story would kind of fit in with how kind of crazy those stories are. And I was trying to think of, you know, what would be a, what would be a bizarre horse story? And maybe it's, you know, maybe your horse saved your life in some way. Uh, you know, may, or maybe your, your son. More like
4: t- they try to kill you. Yeah, is, that that happens more... more than
2: saving. Yeah. Okay. Well, then that means it's even more unusual. <laughs> <laughs> in the horse but, world, uh, that's normal. <laughs> <laughs>
0: maybe your, maybe your son, Timmy was out riding the horse one day and somehow he fell off the horse and fell into a well, and the horse came back and
1: God, got grown
0: good. ups, and I mean that sounds more like a lassie story, really. But, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, yeah, something like that where people—I uh, want people to look at the title of it and say, "Oh wow, I've got to hear that story."
4: Ugh. I feel like I should have plenty of topics for you but they're all escaping me right now um but yeah i I think i've talked about them for 10 years on this show glenn yeah that's true (laughs)
2: that's true and i'm gonna get uh some of the titles are uh kevin saved a life while golfing um uh weston survived a boat propeller
4: oh my god
2: shiny ate his own foot that's the one i couldn't do shiny ate his own foot looks uh luke survived a fatal crash um th- th- I mean K- Casey married a wrong number. That was a happy story though.
0: Yeah. yeah. Every once in a while I put a happy story in. There there's some there's some good ones in there. Oh, Marina was stalked
2: was stalked. Oh, f- that one was like that's one of my most popular episodes so is far. Is it really? Yeah, you got to uh, you got to be ready to listen to that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's it was it. the
0: first time she had actually told that story verbally since it had happened. So and you can tell you can hear the emotion in her voice. Uh, When she was doing that one.
2: But that's the thing I think about podcasts. Let's talk podcasting a little bit here. We've been doing this for a long time, Jamie and I. We discovered uh, earlier in the show, Scott, our first guest was a listener who started in junior high school and has middle school and has been and is now in her master's program. She's been listening to our show that long. So Mm. let's talk podcasting a little. One of the things that Dave Jackson, who does a school of podcasting, always says, if your podcast can elicit some kind of emotion, whether it's fear or whether it's laughter or whether it's, you know, crying your eyes out or sheer Mm -hmm. terror, um, that's a good podcast. And that's one of the things podcasting does that radio couldn't do.
0: Yes, I I agree. And a lot of that is because of radio's time constraints. You know, you've got a, you've got a certain schedule you got to keep to, but you know, on my show, I tell people take as long as you want because people love the details and that's what they do. And I, then, and those shows that elicit emotion, whether you're crying happy tears or sad tears or laughing, uh, those are the episodes
2: that you remember. Uh, no, we have I'm to re- add, in your case, cringing. We're going to add cringing. Too. Okay. All right. Well, you remember that, too, then. <laughs> yeah, keep that on your list, because mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time cringing. Uh, well, and and okay. your show is one of those that when you get done, you go, I don't know why I listen to this show, but then I go back and listen next week. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Good. No, I'm glad to hear that.
4: <laughs> no, he's not. Glenn, you're a jerk. This show's great. <laughs>
2: <laughs> now he knows I've been his biggest fan actually since he first started. I, <laughs> mm-hmm. I've been yep. listening. So what do you think where do you see podcasting going? Um I'll, I'll we'll make that the last question for you. Where do you see it going in the future? I think eventually people will be like like
0: my habits where I haven't listened to commercial radio in the car literally for years because there's absolutely nothing on there that is of any interest to me. I'm always listening to podcasts, Uh, whether it's in the car or if I'm out riding my bike or whatever. There's just so much more to offer. And, you know, it's not that you can say, hey, listen to podcasts because there's no commercials because obviously there are commercials. But you know what? On some of my favorite shows, you're able to fast forward through the commercials, but some of them I don't. Because it's stuff that is specifically of interest to me. And I I think that's, it it just tailors so much to what people are looking for, as opposed to the, you know, the morning zoo goofballs that. Nobody hey, cares watch about it.
2: Me. We're kind of that way. Be careful. Yeah.
4: <laughs> I did that for 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> you
2: notice you're not doing it anymore, though. But you're not doing it anymore, <laughs> yeah, that's right? right? That's true. That's true. <laughs> hey, at some of those 10 years, you didn't have a great time with those guys. <laughs> there,
4: was, there were <laughs> some. I would say the entire 10 years, I didn't have a good
2: time with that. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, you know, I think women, too, I think that's one big change we've seen. When you were doing radio in Atlanta there, Jamie, the woman was sort of the joke all the time, right? I mean, you were the the girl who, they had a certain role in morning radio.
4: Yes. So the, the girls are always like the entertainment reporters. And, you know, and I was the traffic reporter. But, I mean, I... I I, I didn't mean to be a joke. It's just that's how my life is. <laughs> so, but there's was an another girl was, you know, the news anchor and the, the news person is always very serious, but the rest of the girls are, yeah, we're just kind of a mess typically that's interesting
0: you say that you know here in the tampa bay area there's a a pop very popular talk radio station and it's always the same thing there's there's two male hosts who usually agree on everything and then there's the third female host who's the disagree and they you know they kind of team up on her a little bit and um it's kind of the same thing that's been the the, morning uh,
2: zoo formula for since i can remember Mm-hmm. Well, maybe that's because it works. But I don't know. well,
4: they never let the women be the funny one. You know, that's kind of mm-hmm.
2: well.
4: Yeah, it just the way it is. I, I don't know. I mean, that's why I don't love that concept. I don't like girls sounding stupid. I don't like mm-hmm. men sounding like they're. The coolest—they're just that amazing. Um, and see, we switched
2: know, roles here, Scott. I'm the one that sounds stupid now, and she's the one that sounds. <laughs> <laughs> right.
4: Yeah, right.
2: That's you why know, the female uh, listeners love your show.
0: That's right, right exactly.
2: But that's see, why. That's mm-hmm.
4: that's what I wanted this show to be, and what your show is is honest. I just wanted it to mm-hmm. be honest. I don't. I tell people all the time. They're like, well, you know, you've been doing podcasting for ten years. What is your advice? Be yourself. You cannot. Mm-hmm pretend to be anybody else and I i think that is uh what you do. You're you let people be honest number one mm-hmm. and, and you're honest yourself. So congratulations Absolutely.
0: people love vulnerability, not just in the guest but also in the host, you know, because they feel there's a more intimate
2: connection there.
4: Mission accomplished people. <laughs> I almost cried earlier this show, so we're good.
2: <laughs> you know, we uh it's been interesting too in podcasting now. It's forty percent they I just saw numbers. It's forty percent women hosts. Uh, now, on our network, oh. it's been 99% women hosts since day one, but in podcasting in general and also minorities, it really, truly, where minorities couldn't get radio gigs a lot or there were just very few of them, now you're seeing minorities in podcasting. It is truly, we we ju- I mean, we, we say this at all the conferences, it's giving everybody a voice. It really does. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. just a, a saying, it really does. Absolutely. Yep. That's one of the beautiful things of it. Yep. Well, what was that like? It's whatwasthatlike.com. You can go check it out. And by the way, Scott, we don't encourage people to fast forward through our commercials. I just want to throw that out there. Um, Of course not. No, just wanted to get that in. (laughs) I don't think anybody ever actually does that. (laughs) No, not in our show. No, (laughs) no. They love our commercials. (laughs) Thanks, Scott. We appreciate it. (laughs) All right. Have a great day. All right. Take care.